We've had a full week here at First Free. It's been an exciting week. On Friday, of course, as Pastor Camille mentioned, we had the inauguration of Dina Porterfield as the president of Seattle Pacific University. And again, our thanksgiving to God for her presence and Doug's as well in the life of this church. So we're so glad that you're part of our community and we were able to share in that occasion on Friday in which we celebrated the leadership that God is bringing to SPU through you, Dr. Porterfield. So thank you very much. We've also had a variety of other activities through the week, one of which is we've been planning, of course, for a memorial service this coming Saturday for Barb Johnson. So we want you to know about that. Barb Johnson's memorial will be Saturday afternoon, 1 p.m. here in the sanctuary. And uh, Jim and his whole family, of course, have been active in planning that time of remembrance and celebration. You're all invited to share in that time Saturday afternoon at 1 p.m. We also have our Lenten devotional in the foyer. If you would like to pick one of those up, a prayer guide that will lead you through the 40 days of Lent. We also have it online on our website. Just go to ffmc.org slash Lent24. Now, if you type in Lent24, you won't find it. But Lent24, it'll bring you right to it. Lent24 is probably in your pocket right now. The last thing is this afternoon at 5, I don't know where that came from, Scott, I don't know. Um, this afternoon at 5 o'clock, um, I'm hosting the Plate and Prattle at my house, which is a time for dinner and fellowship with eight people, and uh, we've been asking people to sign up for a few weeks. We try to do this several times during the year, and uh, this will probably be our last one for a few months because we are in tax season, and you know that I'm married to a CPA. And so uh, we will probably start up again in April or so. So today, this afternoon, 5 o'clock, Plate and Prattle. The reason I'm sharing it with you now is we had a, two people who last night said they could not come. So I have two openings. So today's your day. So let me know if you want to come. This afternoon, 5 o'clock, my house. I live up in uh, Wedgwood, just north of UW. And so if you'd like to join us, we'd love to see you. So let's just start as we did last week with a moment of silence together. 30 seconds to quiet our hearts and our minds before the Lord. Amen. Here on the altar today, I brought some of my Bibles from the office. Uh, we have more Bibles at home, family Bibles, legacy Bibles that have been in my wife's family for years. My wife is a sixth generation Methodist, and I am a convert. So between my wife's family, we have all sorts of Bibles handed down through all the years. But these are the ones in my office. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the Bible. And so when I look at all these Bibles, they all have a story. Uh, for example, this one over here, this teal-looking one, this is the Bible that reminds me never to buy anything in that color, all right? That's a very important Bible for me. Um, I have um, the, my first Greek New Testament here, 
that I got when I was at Biola, and I'm uh, very thankful for that. I've had it all these years, even though it's a little bit dated. This is the main Bible I used at Biola when I was there as an undergrad. It even has a soda ring on the front of it. And so lots of good notes in here, and um, just this is a great Bible for me over all these years. Uh, then I discovered that why am I carrying around a Bible that big in my backpack all the time? And so then I became an aficionado of the tiny Bible. And so I have, this is the smallest Bible I have. This is a whole Bible right here. This is in the NIV translation. And uh, this came in quite handy because it's very light and I can put it in my pocket and it virtually goes anywhere with me even to this day. There are some here that have sentimental value, of course. This Bible here was the Bible uh, given to me by my mother right after my baptism when I was 13 years old. It was the first Bible ever given to me as a gift. And it's important because I can look in the side of this Bible and I can see the date I was baptized, which is really important because I often forget it. There's another Bible here that might be helpful for those of you who are younger in our community. We have here a translation of the Bible that was generated by ChatGPT, artificial intelligence. It's called the New Testament for Gen Z. And so, how many of you here today are Gen Zers? Uh-huh. There you are. I see you. See, Gen Zers raise their hand like this, which is quintessentially Gen Z energy. It's like, yes, me. Second Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 10 in the Gen Z Bible. But you, my friend, have seen it all. You know my teachings, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my practice, my love. You've witnessed the hardships and persecutions I faced at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Trust me, I've been through some serious trials, but the Lord always pulled me through. And let me tell you, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus better get ready for some serious hate and persecution. Because evil dudes and smooth talkers are going to keep getting worse and worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. But you, my homie, stay committed to what you have learned and who you learned it from. Remember, you can trust their teachings. And don't forget, since you're a little kid, you've been familiar with the Holy Scriptures those bad boys can make you wise and bring you salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every word of Scripture comes straight from God and has its purpose. It's there to teach you, to call you out when you mess up, to set you straight, and to guide you in doing what's right. So that you, as a man or woman of God, can be fully equipped, ready to do all sorts of good deeds. Not bad for artificial intelligence, wouldn't you say? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. The Bible, of course, as you know, is the most read book in history. It is the most read book today. It continues to be the number one bestseller, and it's been the number one bestseller for so long that no newspaper puts it on their bestseller list because it's always number one. It's always number one. So I think it's kind of interesting that it's automatically removed from the list because it's number one every week. Odd. At the same time, the Bible, as being a source of blessing, it can also be a source of bruising. I'm sure all of us have had moments in our life when we've been a little bit bruised with the Bible, and oftentimes in bad ways, and we're going to talk about those in just a moment. The unity of the Bible is a story. It's a story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, whose sum is greater than its parts, and it points us to Jesus. Jesus. 
It points us to Jesus. And so today as we talk about the Bible and all the different ways we experience it, study it, reflect with it, contemplate it, I hope you'll find a way in which God might speak to you and move in your heart and life. For those of you who heard that small bit of advice last week to bring your Bible with you to church this Sunday, this is a good time for you to pull it out. Open it to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to begin at verse 10. Now, if you're wondering where in the heck 2 Timothy is, it's easy. If you fan through the New Testament, you're going to find books that start with numbers. If you find books that starts with numbers, you're getting close. 2 Timothy is one of the pastoral epistles. Sometimes it's easier to find it by going from the back of the Bible from Revelation forward if you need to find it. The Bible is a collection of books, is it not? It is a collection of books within a book. Now, how many of you remember when you learned multiplication what 3 times 9 is? It's 27. 3 times 9 is 27. That's an important formula for you to know when it comes to the Bible because 3 three times 9 is 27. 27 is the number of books there are in the New Testament. And 3 and 9, 3 times 9, 3, 9, that's the number of books in the Old Testament. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. If you can remember 3 times 9, you know how many books there are in the Bible and how many in each of the Testaments. That's a total of 66 books altogether. Everyone can remember 66. Can you not? It's also the number of chapters in the book of Isaiah. That's easy too. See how much Bible knowledge you've amassed in 30 seconds? The purpose of the Bible is not to inform us. The purpose of the Bible is to form Jesus in us. The purpose of the Bible is not to inform us. It is to form Jesus in us. Now, we talked a moment ago about when the Bible bruises, and it can bruise from time to time, and it bruises in a bad way, and it can bruise in a good way. And we're going to talk about a good way in a little bit, but right now, just focus for a moment on when the Bible bruises the most. Oftentimes, it's because it's used out of context. People will go search through the Bible, and they'll find some verse somewhere about something, and they'll say, oh, see, this proves it. It must be true. And so if that's the case, then uh, anyone who's here wearing kind of a mixed blend of fabric, like a cotton poly blend, you're out. The Bible prohibits such clothing, and you're not allowed to wear it. The Bible is written over a 600-year period, capturing 2,000 years of history. And it's written in the time and a context and a culture of a people, and the people are the Jewish people. And it's through their lens, through their experience, through their hardships, and through their victories that we see the Bible kind of through their lens and the way in which they understood God, in which they thought about God. The Bible bruises when it's used out of context when we forget that it was written over a period of time by a lot of different people, and it was dominantly written by Jewish people. And what happens to us oftentimes is that we fail to appreciate the context because sometimes we treat poetry like it's legal code. Sometimes we treat styles of literature that are highly symbolic as if we're supposed to read them literally. We get into all kinds of trouble when we don't take the Bible in its context. We also get in trouble when we worship the Bible. Now, worshiping the Bible is um, called bibliolatry, and it creeps into our life in a strange way. It usually creeps in first by our use of language. When we say things like, the Bible really changed my life. Just hear that sentence again. 
the Bible changed my life. Would it not be just slightly more theologically appropriate to say God changed my life through the Bible? You see, the Bible as a thing only has meaning and power through the Holy Spirit that inspired its writing, that inspires us when we read it, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I think one of the most difficult things we have with the Bible, difficulties we have in when it bruises, is when it's reduced. When it's reduced. And one of the things I learned when I went to Biola early on back in the 1980s, back in the ancient of days when we took notes on tablets of stone. <laughs> B-I-B-L-E. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Like the book is supposed to be like an escape route. Or people call it like an owner's manual. I can tell you that when I pick up the owner's manual to my Hyundai, it puts me to sleep. The Bible is not the basic instructions for leaving earth. It is not an owner's manual that's reductionistic. It makes it into like just a law code or a, you know, a how-to book. And that's not what the Bible is. But on the other hand, oftentimes we make the same mistake of reducing the Bible to fables, stories that are very fanciful. No, that's not helpful always to us either, is it? Something's happening when we pick up the Bible. And what's happening is God. So let's talk about when the Bible blesses. Let's talk about when the Bible blesses. There's five ways in this text that I think the Bible blesses. I'm going to spend about half an hour on each one, all right? A couple minutes. But we're going to walk through that text that I had you open in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. And I want you to skip down specifically to verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Here's what it says. And that from childhood, Paul's speaking to Timothy, so He's telling Timothy, from your child, Timothy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. A lot of prepositions strung together there. The first way in which the Bible blesses is that it is a signpost. It is a signpost. That when we open Scripture, Scripture points us somewhere. Do you hear what that verse said? That from childhood you've known the sacred writings, Timothy's Scripture, which is the Old Testament, New Testament hadn't been written yet, friends. The Old Testament, which were able to give you what? The wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. You see kind of the end game is Jesus Christ. So when we read scripture, it's pointing us there. It's a signpost that helps us recognize who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So the Bible's not an end, uh, end in and of itself. It points to the end, which is Jesus. So when reading the Bible, you can ask yourself what the text is pointing you toward. And there's three simple questions I want to give you you can ask anytime you pick up a Bible and read it. Question number one you can ask, what does this passage say about God? What does this passage say about God? The second question you can ask yourself is, what does this passage say about human beings? So the first question is, what does this passage say about God? The second question is, what does this passage say about human beings? And the third question is, what does this passage say about how God and human beings relate? 
Three easy questions. What does the passage say about God? What does it say about human beings? And what does it say about how they relate? When we start reading the Bible that way, then we begin to disengage just trying to master information. And instead, we move ourselves beyond that into a place where we start listening for relationships, community, connection, the ways in which we're knit together as people. So that's number one, signpost. Wisdom that leads to salvation. Number two is that Scripture is shared. It says in your Bible, if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and if you want a fun time in the Bible, go look up all the chapter 3, verse 16s in the entire Bible, in all 66 books you will be blessed. You know a famous one, of course, John 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16. Have fun with that study on your own. Look up all the 3.16s in every book of the Bible. You'll be blessed, trust me. All Scripture, it says, in 2 Timothy 3.16 is inspired by God. Now, that word for inspire there is a strange word in its original language. And it's almost a made-up word. Nobody uses it hardly except Paul. There's a few other places where it's used. It's only used twice in the whole New Testament, the word inspired. And what does it mean? Anyone know? God breathed is what the word inspired means. God breathed. Now, the idea here by using this word, what Paul's hoping you bring back to remembrance is the story in the book of Genesis when God created Adam out of dust and how did God put life into Adam? breathed into him, all right? Breathed into him. The word for breath or spirit in Hebrew, ruach, is this word that means to have life or breath or to be animated in some way. So scripture is God-breathed. It comes from God. It is spoken by God to human beings. Now, let's take care here. Not only are we supposed to think of Adam in the garden, we're also supposed to think in the Gospel of John when Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on the disciples. So we're to think of the Holy Spirit when we're thinking about reading the Bible. This is how the Bible is shared. And what I mean by this is that when you pick up a Bible and read it, you're sharing in an experience that the same individual or community had when they wrote it. Because the continuity is not the ink on the paper, nor is it the pixels on your screen. What is it? It's the Holy Spirit that's with you when you read it. So, let's hear from someone we always like to read from on a Sunday sermon. Some light casual reading from Karl Barth in the second volume of his Church Dogmatics. Listen to this little excerpt. Here's what Barth says, a great 20th century theologian. He says, the word of God is God himself in Holy Scripture. For the God who once spoke as the Lord to Moses and the prophets the evangelists, those are the gospel writers, and the apostles, now speaks through their written word as the same Lord to his church. Scripture is holy and the word of God as by the Holy Spirit. It became and will become to the church the witness of God's revelation. What Bart is talking about here in all that theological jargon is that the line of continuity in reading the Bible is the Holy Spirit. How powerful is it for you to open up the Gospel of John and read it, knowing that the same Holy Spirit that's in you when you read it was the one who inspired John to write it? 
That's a powerful experience. And so what we're listening for is what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. It's a shared experience when we read Scripture. Not just with all of us here, but it's kind of mysteriously a shared experience through the Spirit with even the people that wrote it. It's a rich experience. The third word, it shapes. Now look at 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for four things. Teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. We're going to tackle the first two first, okay? Teaching and rebuke. So the Bible is a place in which God shapes us. Now, when it talks about teaching and rebuke, it's talking about your beliefs, your theology. I mentioned this in the podcast this week. This is about your orthodoxy, the beliefs that you hold, the theology and the truths you hold of the Christian tradition. The scriptures do a couple of things, one of which they teach us what we should believe, and when we're not on the right track, they rebuke us, telling us, nope, you may be off track here. This is when the Bible bruises in a good way, because who here likes to be rebuked? Anyone? Can I see some hands? Anyone like a rebuke? None of us like to get rebuked, do we? None of us like that. But this is what Scripture can do by the power of the Holy Spirit. It can teach us what we need to be believing, and it can teach us what we should not be believing. We teach the Bible, we memorize the Bible, we hold and are shaped in its thoughts and intentions by God through the Scripture. Bible study is an important thing for us to do because it teaches us and it rebukes us. God speaks in those moments. When I was 16 years old, I was asked to lead the Bible study for our youth group one night. And there were three adults who happened to be there when I was leading the Bible study. Bible study ends, all three adults come up to me and they said, you should be a pastor. And they all came to me separately. My call to ministry started then, when I was 16. And so, Fast forward, middle-aged guy, here I am, teaching the Bible. I'm telling you, the Bible can shape our lives, and God can shape our lives through Scripture in such a powerful way. The fourth word, S. You notice they all start with S, don't you? Uh-huh, yeah. Hmm. I wrote this sermon when I was still on my medical leave. It's a witness to how much time I had on my hands. The Bible supports that's the second two words, remember? All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. Those last two words, correction and training in righteousness, are not about orthodoxy. They're not about the things we believe. They're about the things we do. They're about the things we do, the practices we have. It's called orthopraxis. And what we mean here is that the Scriptures are a way in which God speaks to us about what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. So we got it all covered. What you should believe, what you shouldn't believe, what you should be doing, and what you shouldn't be doing. God speaks to us in the totality of Scripture to help support our actions in the world. So that when we go forth as God's people and live in the world the way God has called us to live, the actions we're taking we can be supported by Scripture in them. And the actions, perhaps, that we need to stop taking, we can be supported by Scripture. And maybe the actions we should start taking are also supported by Scripture. Now, I want you to listen to what a correction sounds like. 
in case you were wondering. And I decided to pick a correction that's a couple centuries old, namely 16 centuries old from St. John Chrysostom. Here's a correction. One cannot be in combat and live luxuriously. One cannot be wrestling and feasting. Let none, therefore, of those who are contending to seek for an ease or joyous living. Again, the present state is a contest, warfare, tribulation, straits and trials, and the very scene of conflicts. The season for rest is not now, for this is the time for toil and labor. That's exciting, isn't it? (laughs) Of course it's not. That's what correction sounds like. So John, this is from one of his sermons, preaching to his community in the fourth century, telling them that their kind of lackadaisical, luxurious way of life, the way in which Christian community had achieved comfort, needed to be called into question. That now is not the time for such things. We are engaged in a pitted and significant conflict of God's kingdom against the forces of evil. Kind of stings, doesn't it? Now the last word. It's actually in the next verse. Verse 16 in your Bible says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. Verse 17, the one we often forget. What's it say? Read it to yourself real quick if you got it in front of you. So that the woman or man of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. So here's the rub. The goal of Scripture is to point us to Jesus so that, that's verse 17 starts with two important words, so that we each might be fully capable, equipped for every good work. Scripture's job is to be a tool, a means of grace, a pipeline, in some ways a sacrament in which God's Spirit speaks to us about those four things, remember? Teaching, rebuke, correction, training, and righteousness. So that what? what? What for? So that you can know a lot about the Bible? So you can tell people about what you know? So you can tell them how many books are in the New Testament? No, no, no. What's it say? You're, You're capable and equipped for every good work. That's why. This is where I take umbrage with those who study the Bible a lot, but whose hearts are filled with hate because they have not embodied the essential message of Scripture, is that Jesus is the message of Scripture. The way I would frame it is that the Word of God is Jesus, and this Word of God points to that Word of God. And that if the Scriptures aren't forming us into disciples of Jesus, we've fundamentally missed the point of Scripture. The purpose of the Bible is not to inform us It's to form Jesus in us. And what I'd like you to do this week is to try a little challenge. This is my closing word to you. How can you challenge yourself to read Scripture in a new way this week? It's on your handout in your uh, bulletin. This other question is there. Pause before any reading of the Bible and invite the Holy Spirit to be with you. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the continuity that connects you over time with the word of Scripture? And how does it change the way you read Scripture? 
And then what I'd like you to do at the end of this week, after you've tried that for a while, is pause for a moment on Saturday, six days from now, and ask yourself this question, how has Scripture equipped you for every good work? Now, I just don't want you to open up the Bible and read it cold, because I'm afraid you're going to open it to Leviticus. <laughs> the passage of Scripture that I'd like you to read, I printed there for you. It's in the Gospel of John. What chapter, everyone? Chapter what? 11. What verses? 1 through 46. It's the story of Jesus' visit to Bethany when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And what I want you to do in this story is to read about the promise of new life in Jesus Christ. We as a church, within our community, actually have been in a, a difficult season. We've had people in the life of our church we've been praying for for years that in just the last few weeks have died. People in our church that, well before I got here, there were individuals pouring themselves out in prayer for families and for individuals who've gone home to be with the Lord. I can think of no better way for us to draw some teaching, some rebuke, some correction, and some training in righteousness by sitting with the story where Jesus goes to his friend's Lazarus tomb and he stands outside and he weeps and then calls him forth to life. Jesus says in that same chapter, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, the Bible's job isn't just to inform us. Informing us is fine. It, that there's, it, that there's no harm in that. But what the Bible needs to become for us is a way in which we open its pages like a sacrament and we allow the Holy Spirit to speak and move in us and shape us into being people that look more like Jesus. That's what the world outside these four walls is really dying, dying to know. And it will be you that bring them to them. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for the ways in which you speak in Scripture. We love Scripture, Lord. And we love it so much that at times we read it in a way that we take it for granted. I pray this week, Lord, that you break through the ways we read Scripture and offer us new visions and new ways of being your people. We thank you for Jesus as our word that has come forth. On the night in which that word, Jesus, gave himself up for us, he took bread, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, the Lord Jesus took the cup, and after he had given thanks to you, he gave it to the disciples, saying, Take, drink from this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you and for many in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, God, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. We are so thankful for Jesus, so thankful for his life, death, and resurrection, and thankful that he has revealed to us in the reading of Scripture. We offer all praise, honor, and glory to you, Almighty Father through Jesus Christ our Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit, as we pray together the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you.